Turn with me to James 1. We started teaching through the epistle of James last week, so we will continue doing so. We didn't get very far. Uh, somebody was living pretty sinful or belly aching about the struggles of being an American, you know. So hard here in America. Just so, so hard. I mean, I, you know what I think will be the most damning is how many American Christians deny Christ and go to hell for the sake of being accepted and liked on that middle school playground called social media. Uh, I am always reading about half a dozen books and then probably 20 news articles a day. And a lot. Back in the 80s, we, alert, we were fearful of communism and uh, true fascism that shuts people up. I don't really think we need to worry about true communism or true fascism in our nation. Uh, most Christians are cowards and they censor themselves. And to be honest, those of you that, that still flirt heavily with social media, it's really conditioning you to silence yourselves. Miss Amy and I were talking about that this morning. We do our work out in the parking lot. A lot of folks usually come. You guys didn't show up this morning. It was me and Miss Amy in 27 degrees, but we were talking about self-censorship this morning. When you get on social media and you know what the haters hate, you're automatically living in their mind, and it's automatically affecting what you say. And the best place is just to ignore them. And the best way to ignore social media is just don't be there. And... Uh, you know, I've harped on this for years. All the research has proven me right. Your failed kids have proven me right. Your carnality has proven me right. But more concerning than any of that is the fact that we're afraid of what people think of us in our walk with God. Very few Christians can get on social media and just sling it raw. I don't know of many Christians at all that get out there and just preach scripture. They're out there following cat videos and who knows whatever else. My concern, social media aside, is that this nation is so comfortable and so convenient, we're going to deny Christ. Maybe not you or I. People will deny Christ just to be liked. And the whole reason people became cowards and rejected mom and dad uh, on the playground is the whole reason folks will become cowards and reject God in the marketplace because they just want to be liked. They just want to be accepted. So that's why it's important that you run with Christians stronger than you who enforce your faith and encourage it and fortify it. You want to make sure you run with Christians hotter for God than you. You don't ever select a church that's easy. You don't ever select a company of believers that's easy. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're saved or praiseworthy. Just because you fellowship with CrossFitters doesn't mean you're in shape. Just because you work out or just because you visit CrossFit doesn't mean you're in shape. And this is the allegory that applies to the saints. Just because you run with Christians doesn't mean you are one. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you, you're saved. And just because you can quote scripture doesn't mean you have any endurance in you. You and I have got to be bold. We've got to be full of the Holy Ghost. We've got to get around those that stretch us. We've got to get around those that challenge our faith. We have to get around those folks that make us soar spiritually so we can be stronger. You don't find easy. You don't look for the easy church. Don't never select the easy option. You, you can go CrossFit or you can go uh, Richard Simmons. Remember Richard Simmons, the frizzy-haired sissy guy in the shorty shorts dancing and sweating to the oldies? You know, that was real big in the 80s and the 90s. And 
I guess grandma's still sweating to the oldies till she throws a hip out. But it was always funny. You watch those videos. I saw them in the 80s, and some of you are too young to even know who I'm talking about. Richard Simmons always had fat people around him on those workout videos. Now, you become what you behold. And unless you want to like go, through, unless you want your fitness regiment to be shorty shorts, lispy, and sweating to the oldies with a bunch of fat people and sweatbands on, don't feed on that. So then you find like P90X or you find like you know, Tybo and, you know, you want to find those workout videos where everybody around them is ripped and jacked and just looks like they just came off American Gladiators. Yeah. Find a church with people that will go to war for Christ, who know God and the Holy Ghost. You don't go to church with, where the worship team looks like they're pagans. You don't find a church where the worship team looks like they just came out of a bar. My goodness, are we that stupid? You walk into a gym and everybody in there is having strokes and heart attacks and they have to have defib paddles on every weight machine. Like, that's not the workout place for me. <laughs> you know, you don't walk into a surgery center and the surgeon's hands are shaking. Looking forward to doing your cataract surgery tomorrow. <laughs> you go find a better surgeon. <laughs> To me, this is simple, but the church is stupid, mostly because we're sheep. So anyway, let's make sure we, we press toward the mark of the high call. And if you're comfortable in your walk with God, you're not walking with your God. There is a stretch. Yes, there is a comfort. It's the Holy Ghost. It isn't ease or convenience. There ought to be this stretch. We ought to be able to look back a year from now and say, I am better than I was in 23. I'm better than I was in 22. If you're the same person, either you haven't been picking up what the church is laying down or you're just deceived. Like we quoted William Wormbrand, um, uh, Richard Wormbrand Sunday morning that he had his famous quote. He was a Christian who was persecuted for his faith in uh, communist Romania. He said, there's two types of Christians, those that sincerely believe and those that sincerely believe they believe. And the difference is how they live. And you need to run with Christians that don't just sincerely believe they believe. They sincerely believe, and you can tell because they're changing. They're on fire. They move quicker and swifter than you. You need to make sure you run with Christians that stretch you, that encourage you, that challenge you, that look at you and don't let you make an excuse. They hold your feet to the fire. That's the kind of believer you want to run with. We're in this together to finish our race. We're in this together, and, and to, to use one allegory of the New Testament, we're in this as soldiers, and you encourage each other. Even on the football field, thankfully we don't have a biblical allegory that says we all, like football players on the gridiron, do toss the holy pigskin, because it wouldn't be kosher, be unclean. <laughs> but even on the football field, they're always punching each other and smacking each other and headbutting each other and pounding each other to stir each other up. Come on, get up, you can do it. Walk it off. Brush it off. Don't let that get in your head. They, the, the football teams have way more biblical fellowship working than most churches do. There's a camaraderie. They're a team. They rise together. They fall together. It sounds very Corinthian. Sounds, sounds very Pauline. And we just, uh, the modern church is being atomized. We're just being broken up into small little segments. And we don't live life together. We come and go as we please. And it really is making for a weak body. You know, if you think about it, uh, which takes longer to melt, a huge iceberg or a little crushed ice? And when the body of Christ has been pulverized in the little crushed ice, we assimilate into the world a lot quicker than if we're just one giant homogenous body of Christ sticking together. 
But you know, the modern church just come when you can, give us what you can, and we reject that because it's not biblical or New Testament. Anyway, James 1, we were concluding in verse 12. Blessed is that the man that endures temptation. We're going to read out the New Living Translation. I like it, the New Living Translation. It's kind of a combination of normal equivalency and uh, dynamic equivalency, which really is just the, the philosophy by which it's translated. Uh, the dynamic equivalency basically means it's a thought-for-thought thought translation and not necessarily a word-for-word word translation, which is okay most of the time. We'll see an example here in a minute where the dynamic equivalency hurts the New Living Translation, but the thought is still communicated, but the Old Testament truth is totally missed. And, and that'll be apparent in a minute. Uh, so we're in verse James 1. We're going to do New Living Translation. Verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. What an exhortation for us today. It's not very hard in America. I almost feel like it's an insult to read this, or maybe we insult God by living the life we do. Like, Lord, I'm sorry you even wrote this because we're not really tested much. Temptation, sure. But our temptations are carnal and fleshy. We're not even tempted to deny Christ under the threat of death or execution. We'll just deny Christ to be liked on Facebook. We'll deny Christ to have followers on Twitter or Exeter, whatever it is now. <laughs> we'll deny Christ to go to a comfortable church. So I don't even know if our temptations are qualifying for biblical temptations. Either way, it's going to hurt us. But God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So there's a promise of a crown if we love him. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Everybody, we used to witness. It was the worst way to witness. We quickly found this out back in college. We'd start off, you know, when you're witnessing and you're just buckshotting the whole community, you're just trying everything. And you've quickly learned asking people, do you love Jesus is one of the dumbest ways to evangelize because nobody's going to say they hate Jesus. Even Christians will say they love Jesus, but Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So you only get a crown, the crown of life, if you keep his commandments. And Jesus is quick to say, and my commandments aren't grievous, so quit bellyaching. Now, you wouldn't believe his commandments weren't grievous if you asked the average American or modern Christian, oh, these are so hard. Oh, that standard is so legalistic. Oh, it's so impossible. They just expect us to be Christ-like at that church. Well, they don't at yours. They don't expect the worship team to be Christ-like at your church. They don't expect the elders to be Christ-like at your church. Why would you go to a church where the expectation is not to be Christ-like? I mean, my goodness, if we have God in us, it ought to be easy to be Christ-like. We just submit to him. We spend time in his presence, and we come out smelling like Christ, sounding like Christ, dressing like Christ. You spend any time in a foreign country long enough, you'll sound a little bit like them. You'll dress a little bit like them. You'll smell a little bit like them. You'll think a little bit like them, and you won't even mean to. Amen. Why, why should we not expect us to be more Christ-like? Verse 13, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. Yeah. Uh, why are you doing this to me, God? He doesn't tempt us. You can't say God is tempting you. This is almost a throwback to the Garden of Eden where God says, where are you? Who told you you're naked? And Adam blames God. Um, 
It's the woman you gave me and the serpent. And then Eve says, is a serpent. Everybody's shifting blame. It's almost like they're trying to not take responsibility and they're wanting to, Adam really is trying to blame God. It's the woman you gave me. If you hadn't given me this woman, hear me clearly. Your spouse is not your problem. You are your problem. You're your own worst enemy. You know why you hate your spouse? Because you hate yourself. You know why you fight with your spouse? Because you're full of internal anger and hostility and fear and insecurity. Nothing will pacify you. Not a thousand women, not a thousand men, not a thousand. Uh, even Gandhi would look at you, spend a night with you and say, kill me. Some people are so tumultuous. I mean, even a monk with a vow of silence would say, I quit. I quit. I just, I can't do this. I can't. I just, you got to start over with your vow. I don't care, but I can't be with this person. Some Christians, they're supposed to be full of the Prince of Peace. I would never know. You can't shift blame. You're the problem. The sooner you and I can realize we're the problem everywhere we go, the quicker we can fix the problem, which is us. Quit trying to fix everybody around you. That's a control issue. God's not interested in fixing everybody around you. He's interested in fixing you and I. Because no matter where you go, there you are, and you're going to be the problem. And if my foolish scenario plays out, everywhere you go, people will just kill themselves. And I don't know what's wrong with all these people. I do. You. You're what's wrong with all these people. Fix yourself. Get with Jesus and find some peace. Amen. (laughs) You can't say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong. And he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires. And that's what we need to focus on for a moment. Temptation comes from our own desires. Legitimate desires can be drawn out beyond legitimate boundaries. Most of our desires are God-given, God-ordained. But when we get them beyond the God-ordained boundaries, they become sin. So food desire, that's legitimate. But if you take it beyond its boundary, it's gluttony. Sexual desire is a God-given desire. And it's for marriage. And it's for procreation. And it's for intimacy and pleasure. But you take it beyond its God-given boundaries, and it's sin. Intellectualism, that's a God-given function. We ought to have some common sense. It's not so common anymore. You ought to use some critical thinking, but you can take it beyond its boundaries, and now you become an intellectual, legalistic analog, and the Bible would say, don't lean to your own understanding. So there's so many wonderful desires that we can get into sin so quickly with any of them. God has given us the power to obtain wealth. That's biblical. That's Deuteronomy 8. But you can get into greed because you don't curb that desire. So what happens is, All these desires are within us. We have to curb them and use them according to God's blueprint. It's just like a hammer. A hammer is a wonderful tool, but you can commit sin with it. Guns are wonderful, but you can commit sin with it. Your mouth is wonderful, but we can commit sin with it. All these things are neutral until we violate the law of God with the tool, and now we're in trouble. Desires are no different. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. I'm going to read the King James here, verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust 
and enticed. Now the word drawn away, or as I'm reading here in the New Living Translation, enticed, it means to be lured away with bait. So we have to make sure we're mindful of the bait that we're being drawn towards. Because the devil knows our weaknesses. He knows which of our appetites control us, whether it's a money appetite or lust appetite or food appetite or anger appetite or comeuppance appetite or equality appetite or victimhood appetite. He knows what to bait us with. And we're all, every one of us in here has a different appetite. We all have what we would call different familiar sins. And the devil knows what to go fishing with. I'm not a fisherman. I mean, a little bit. I've done enough fishing, but I'm not fluent in it. But, you know, you, if you want to catch one kind of fish, you use one kind of bait. You want to use another kind of fish, you use another kind of bait. You want to catch Pastor Caleb, you use one kind of bait. You want to catch Miss Manda, the devil's going to use another kind of bait. You have to know what bait you're dumb enough to bite on. And we're smart enough to already know. I flat guarantee you I'm not biting on the drag queen drunk bait. That has never been alluring to me. Therefore, it will never be a lure. What makes lures alluring is that we like them. You're not going to catch a warthog with a spinner bait. Because warthogs don't, they're like, what is this? <laughs> I like me in a boat with Brother Chad. What's this? A spinner bait. You're making that up, Chad. No, it really is, Pastor. <laughs> no, you need to know what allures you. You, we're smart enough to know where we keep circling the mountain. And then the intelligent person will do something about it. Say, note to self, I've seen this before. I've seen these little metal things that don't look quite natural. It seems to be like a little baby frog, but last time I bit on this, I got a grappling hook in my mouth. It didn't feel too good. Been talking with a lisp ever since. This feels familiar. I probably shouldn't, oh, but how can I say no? We've all been there because we're that dumb sometimes. And that's what Paul, excuse me, James is trying to say here. Temptation comes from our own desires. King James, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, allured, baited away. Our desires are what draw us out. They lure us out, and that's when we get in trouble. But you and I, we don't even need it on a, a note card on our mirror at home. We know where we fall. And this is where we would take a note card and find five scriptures that help disconnect our attraction to this lure. Maybe we study the lure. I know these feelings as they're coming. I know I'm about to want to fight. Be smart enough to recognize I'm irritated. I'm irritated. You know, everybody else in your household is smart enough to know when you're irritated. You always see it in the movie when all of a sudden everybody's carrying on and then all of a sudden they're like, wait, you notice that? And all the birds are gone. And all the cars are gone. And it gets real eerily quiet in the movie. It's such a trope. And then all of a sudden you hear, boom. And something's coming that is everybody else is scared off. In your home, when everybody's avoiding you, you're that monster. How come they could read it before you could? You bit on the bait called hostility. You bit on the bait, the lure called anger, resentment. Dad's in a mood. Mom's in a mood. Run away, kids. Don't look your mother in your eye. She'll turn you to stone. You, you, everybody knows these things. What's for dinner tonight, Dad? Nothing. Mama's in a mood. I guess we're going to go get Wendy's or pizza. How, many, how long will you be this way? How long will you bite on this lure? It's a temptation and it's sin. 
we should be smart enough. And maybe with nobody looking, you cup your hand and you write down your top three spinner baits. Or I don't know. I'm just making this stuff up. Night crawlers, corn. Chad's laughing at me because I'm trying to act like a highfalutin fisherman. And <laughs> I hadn't been seriously fishing since I was in high school with a broken leg and couldn't do anything else. I'm like, well, can't do anything athletic. I realized I went and bought my fisher, fishing license and I went out to Lake Meridian like, <laughs> with a broken leg. And I'm like, so how you do this? And you just throw it over. Like, I'm breaking a sweat already. <laughs> I actually went with a, uh, a Chinese kid from Taiwan. He taught me how to fish. So I learned to fish from a Taiwanese. <laughs> he was actually a Mormon kid. And anyway, those all sorts of high school stories. Figure out, maybe you cup your hand, figure out all the kinds of bait you bite on to sin against your God. Because the devil already knows what they are. I've never done fly fishing, but I'm familiar with it. They know what's biting. And they keep them on a little patch right here, and they pick them off. And they, they say, this is what I'll get them with today. And I would hate to think the devil knows you and I so well that when he walks that circuit and comes back to our address, he says... They always bite this. Always. Maybe the demon realm, I'm just making this up, speculating. Maybe the demons say, watch, watch this. They've been serving God pretty good, got a good momentum. They always bite this. And if I spray a little bit of this on there, right, Chad? You spray some of that. You know what I'm talking about. I think it's called come and get some. <laughs> I don't know. If I manufactured it, it'd be called come and get some. And the sum would be spelled S-U-M, come get some. Maybe one word, trademark, come get some. He cannot deny this. She cannot. I, as soon as I put this, as soon as I cast it and drag it through their house, it'll be all over for six months. Anybody ever been there? Why are we that stupid? We're not. We're just not spiritually alert. We're not stupid people. We act stupid. We do stupid. We're not dumb people, though. We just don't walk circumspectly. You've got to be able to recognize, I can smell this. I can feel this. I can tell it's coming. Lord, and that's when you steal away to the cleft of the rock and say, God, have mercy. God, have mercy. God, hide me. God, I'm crying out to you till this lure goes right past me. And I can say, hallelujah, I beat it for once. Beat it without having to repent. Beat it without having to be full of shame. Say, ah, ha, ha. If I beat it once, I'll beat it again. And maybe he casts it again the next day because that's what fishermen do, right, Chad? And you just keep dragging, especially fly fishermen. You keep doing it. You feed it out. You feed it out. You keep laying it so that fish thinks it's skipping across the water. you got to be willing to endure. That's what it said, patience. God rejoices in those who with patience endure the tempting and the tribulation. We're not used to praying that deeply, though. We were taught through the word of faith to pray to get stuff. We weren't, we weren't taught to pray to beat stuff. We were taught to pray to get stuff like America needed any help with that. Now, not everybody taught that, but you and I know coming out of the word of faith, this is why we're still struggling with the same sin we did in college. All right, let's keep reading. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. That's a rough way to look at it. It drags us away. Verse 15, these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. What a, what a contrast. What a mental picture. It gives birth to death. 
These desires give birth to sinful actions. And we might insert this to continue the thought. And when sinful actions are allowed to grow, they give birth to death. When the desires become inordinate, this is my own personal notes, when desires become inordinate, that is excessive or unrestrained, they become destructive and sinful. There's nothing wrong with getting angry, but if you're angry all the time, that's unrestrained, that's inordinate. There's nothing wrong with sex in the confines of marriage, but you let that go out beyond that, that's perversion. There's nothing wrong with food, but when you become obese, nobody likes to touch that one because obesity is a sin you wear but it's an inordinate, unrestrained desire. Nobody wants to touch it, probably because most preachers are fat. Nobody's going to... I mean, if I had a porn addiction, I wouldn't preach against porn. And if I was fat, I wouldn't preach against fat because, hey, I'm a hypocrite. But you should, no matter what you are, preach against your own sin. It might help you some. Any desire, when it becomes inordinate and unrestrained, it becomes destructive and sinful. Dr. Barclay says, fast your attractions so they don't become distractions. Fast food so that it doesn't become your God. Fast entertainment so it doesn't define your life. If you have a very amorous, that is, sexy marriage, Paul said in Corinthians 7, fast intimacy so you can give yourselves over to prayer and fasting lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency. So even that is taught to be fasted. Whatever is your attraction, you need to fast it just so you get used to going without it. There's not a single desire, not a single appetite you have that cannot be denied except for breathing. You can go without breath for about four minutes, water for about four days, food for about 40 days. So food and water you can do without for a solid day and it won't hurt you. We don't think we can go without social media for 45 minutes. <laughs> shows you that we're addicted. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sinful actions are allowed to grow, they give birth to death. Verse 16. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father. That's in contrast to those that would say, God is tempting me. James is saying, no, 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 no. Don't be deceived. Don't be in error. King James says, err not, which means we can be in error. The word is plane, which means to be misled, to be deceived, to walk off course. That means a lot of Christians can. We can be deceived. We can err. If he's saying don't be, then we can be. You don't tell somebody don't be a locomotive. What does that even mean? It's not a possibility. But if he's giving us a warning, don't be in error, it's because we can be. Here the subject is God gives we evil things. He says, no, no, no. Only good and precious gifts come down from the Father lights in whom there's no variable, there's no shadow of turning. That's King James. He says, don't be deceived. God only gives good things, perfect things. They come to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He is forever the same. Even his light produces no shadows because he is the, the light behind the shadows. He's forever good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. God doesn't kill people. Why God put that on me? He didn't. There's a devil. Why God put that on me? He didn't. You did. You put that on you. Why God destroyed my marriage? He didn't. You did. You're a wretch. Remember, Gandhi wants to kill himself around you. That guy endured a lot. You broke him. You're the person that broke Gandhi. <laughs> he looked at you, rolled up his sleeve and said, no more passive resistance. 
<laughs> yeah. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Verse 18, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. That's as Peter says, we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, the word of God that lives and abides forever. We've been born again of the word of God. That is our spiritual DNA. It's what defines us. You know, each one of, one of us has our mom and dad's DNA. That's why you look like your mom a little bit, look like your daddy a little bit. My, my signature, my handwriting actually looks like a combination of my mom and dad's. It's the craziest thing to me. When I, when I get into my fancy writing mode, I can see both my parents' signature meld. And they didn't teach me to read or write. Now, with my brother, he looks like a goofy chicken right and left-handed, so maybe I got all of his ability, too. But my penmanship looks like my mom's and my dad's. I'm sure sociology can explain that. I can't. That's my natural DNA. My accent is a combination of where my parents led me, and some of my mannerisms come from my mom and dad. But our spiritual DNA is the Word of God, and we, we can't escape it, which is why you're, when you, you and I sin, we feel horrible. And we should. It's part of us. It courses through our veins. It defines who we are. We've been born again of this. He begat us again because we were alive once. The law came, sin revived. We died according to Romans 7. And now we're born again. He begat us again by the word of truth, not by water. Not by water. He begat us again by the word of truth. It's interesting. Water's not mentioned in the salvation verse. Water's not mentioned. We're not begat again by water. We're begat again by the word of God. And then we're water baptized. The problem with water, salvation by water is it totally misunderstands the threefold nature of man, spirit, soul, and body. Water, water baptism is wonderful. It's a sacrament. We esteem it highly. But how does water on the body do anything to the spirit? It's a misunderstanding or an ignorance concerning the nature of man and the three steps of salvation, which is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Each step of salvation, according to the New Testament, ministers to a different tripartite nature of man. Sanctif uh, justification is a spirit man. Sanctification is a soul. Glorification is a body because God wants to save every bit of us to the utmost. Amen. And it begins by being born again of the word of God. He begat us again. Or as it says in the New Living Translation, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Now, that's cool. Makes you feel really warm and fuzzy, and it should. We are his pri Out of all creation, we're his prized possession. This is where dynamic uh, interpretation fails us because the Greek word is first fruits. And that's a reference to the Old Testament offering of first fruits. It's a direct reference to the law of Moses, but it gets translated as prized possession. That's not an Old Testament concept. That's a modernist concept. This is where the dynamic equivalency says thought for thought. We're God's favorite, we're his best. But in actuality, what the verse is saying to these believers, you're the firstborn among many who are about to come. You're the first fruit of the harvest. These early church believers were the first fruit of 2,000 years of people being born again. So I just wanted to show an example of where the dynamic equivalence hurts us because it's a thought for thought and not a word for word because the exact word is first fruits. So what are first fruits? Because I'm assuming you know, but that's all right. It's my failure. First fruits is when you harvested anybody into agriculture, when you sow seed for, in this case, barley or wheat, 
there will, or corn. We've all had, hopefully we've all had gardens. You, you know there's going to be some fruit that comes up early. And by fruit, we mean grain, apples, we mean tomatoes, we mean okra. There's always those first things that come in way before the rest of the crop. And that's the first fruit. And under the Old Testament, they were to take that and offer it as a first fruits offering, knowing they weren't going to get to eat it, but they did that in faith that the rest of the harvest would come in, which required their faith because it was going to take the special rain and the special heat to do it. So by faith, we're not going to get to eat this. God gets it, and he's going to make the rest of it come in. It was a faith offering. He's using that application to tell the believers in James' day, the Hebrews scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor, what would be modern-day Turkey, He's telling them, you're the first fruit. You're the first saved among many brethren. You're the early harvest, and God is pleased by you, and there'll be many more to follow. We're part of that latter harvest. We don't have any pride. We're not the first harvest. We're not the middle harvest. We're like the tail end harvest. We're almost like God said, go back out there and see if you get anybody else. <laughs> me? <laughs> I picked me. I want to be saved. <laughs> of course, if you're a Calvinist, pick me. I was ordained to be saved. <laughs> Verse 19, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen. That's pretty good. Slow to speak. That's even better. Slow to get angry. Slow to get angry. Slow to get angry. Short fuses are not praiseworthy. We ought to be able to absorb a lot. Now, this comes back to that lure. What because this is dealing with anger. It's, it's odd because there's no context to anger. Then all of a sudden, boom, anger here in this passage. We all have a fuse. Somebody's fuse, I think like Jeff King. Jeff King's fuse is about seven miles long. <laughs> I've never seen Jeff King upset. I've seen him deal with family, with family issues, and I've seen him be stern. But I was like, I didn't even know he's mad. He's just Mr. Earl. Mr. Earl has a very long fuse. He's pretty chill. And others of us, like you don't, you get the lighter in one hand and the firecracker in the other, and they just see each other and you blow up. <laughs> All right, that's sin. And that makes Gandhi want to kill himself. <laughs> now, where's your fuse? Slow to anger. Because of the peace of Christ, because of the word, because of the Holy Ghost, we ought to be able to absorb a lot, especially if you'd shut up and be quick to hear, slow to speak. And if you'd be quick to hear and slow to speak, you would be able to hear somebody's heart and there'd be nothing to get angry about. And we ought to all be quick to hear, slow to speak. And we ought to all be slow to anger. Because it goes on to say, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. You, when you and I get r angry in a sinful way, there is a righteous indignation. That's not most of what we manifest. But when we get angry in a sinful way, the work of God is not accomplished. We end up burning the work of God to the ground. We burn our marriage. We burn our kids. We burn our friendships. We burn our church. And that's why we just honestly need to stop and listen way more than we probably want to. At the very least, just say it says, be slow to speak, not slow speaking. <laughs> I'm just thinking about Bud Bud. He just got like, son, spit it out. Um, you know, um, um, yeah, and that's not even slow. It's just mumbling. Son, just stop. Think about your words. Longer. Think longer. And then he can spit it out in one sentence. We ought to all be slow to speak. 
but be quick to hear what people have to say and then process it. This, this verse right here would fix all the contention of our modern culture because everybody's right in their own eyes and nobody bothers to hear anything. Uh, we met this week uh, with um, a professor and a uh, wonderful man, and he teaches uh, religious studies, and he's a believer, but he has to teach all other religions too. So he was telling me, telling us about what he does. And so even though he's a believer, he has to give everybody equal credence. So he said um, that my first assignment, I always give my general studies, general religious studies courses. What, you know, what do you know about Buddhism? What do you know about Islam? What do you know about all these different religions? And he said they always, these are 18, 19-year-old kids, they always throw out all the stereotypes. Muslims are this, and all Buddhists are this, and all Hindus are that. Oh, great. Okay. And he says it's always a stereotype, and it's always ignorant. He said, well, let's do this first. Let's write on the board everything Christians believe about baptism. Because you just said all Muslims believe this, all Buddhists believe this. So let's write on the board everything all Christians, what do Christians believe about baptism? So he says, I take all these things and everybody throws out what they know, what they've heard, what they believe. And he, so he says, then I make a giant definition. So baptism is and is not important for salvation. Baptism can be done by a minister or not done by a minister, and it can be dunked or it could be sprinkled. It must be done in the name of Jesus or not in the name of Jesus, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said, my point is, Christians don't agree at all on water baptism. So you can't say Christians believe this about water baptism, just like you can't say Muslims believe this about jihad. That's part of being slow to speak and quick to hear. Instead of jumping, and when every man thinks he's right in his own eyes, he's not right at all. We got to be careful. Let's keep reading here. Brothers and sisters, so that's both sexes. There's not a third category. Just like to point that out. So sometimes you got to remind people today. There's no in between. <laughs> you must all be quick. All. That means women too. Men, quick to hear. Women, slow to speak. But men, quick to hear. Are you listening to me? No. <laughs> I did see that joke. Are you, are you even listening to me is a bizarre way to start a conversation. <laughs> and everybody must be slow to anger. This will help your marriage and save your kids from therapy. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So quit acting like your mama or your dad. We're about to look at a word here, and the definition in the Greek implies a lack of self-honesty. And I, I want to jump ahead and just mention it. This would be good for all of us because where, where we all, myself included, where we hurt ourselves as believers and as human beings, we're not honest with ourselves. Not 100%. And we need to practice being that way. Now, not everybody can be either because of pride and you think you're 100% awesome or because your self-esteem is so low, you just think you're nothing. But somewhere healthy down the middle, you could be honest about yourself and be honest about where you really came from. 
Be honest about the outcome of where you're going. Be honest about your failures and your strengths. To be honest with yourself means you, you, you genuinely know your strengths, but you also genuinely know your weaknesses. To be honest with yourself means you know what your strengths in Christ are, but you also know if you're going to betray Christ and fail, you know exactly how you're going to do it already. You ought to be able to know that. To be honest with yourself means you're able to document everything you can't stand about your spouse, but that doesn't mean you share it with them. But also you know pretty much how they feel about you. You're able to communicate where your insecurities are rather than acting like you don't have any. We have to be honest about who we are, and we need to be honest with ourselves about it. There's freedom in that. There's a freedom and a liberty when you can look at somebody and say, I I just want you to know I'm horribly insecure. So I'm probably going to call you tomorrow and see if you were still okay with being my friend today. I had a friend do that to me. I, with, uh, it helps you from laying up stupidity in your heart. Now with this botany book selling and people getting it and my friends, my ministry friends, I text all of them, hey, oh, Pastor Chris, we got the book. And I tell them all, because my heart's already saying it, send me your feedback. It will bless me and help me. Because that's the God's honest truth. To know that the work I put into it is helping a minister, that's the payback I want. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. I wouldn't do it any other way. I'll, I'll be glad to tell you what I think of it. I need that. And sometimes we try to act like we don't need certain things. And we are self-made, and we're not self-made. But part of being honest is being able to say, this is where I'm insecure. Part of being honest is being able to recognize where you come from. If you come from white trash, know where you come from so that you don't go back there. If you come from an abusive home, say, I come from an abusive home. If you come from a mediocre home, I come from a mediocre home. If I come from a gang-bang, a gangsta, baller house, fess up. Baller! I already made fun of rednecks. So look. <laughs> be able to know where you come from and be honest about it. Know what your prejudices are. Know what your insecurities are. Be able to be honest with yourself. And that'll go a long way with being honest towards other, other people. If you know it about you, it's okay to share it with other people. Be able to say, listen, don't tell me secrets. I can't keep them. My mouth is a sieve. <laughs> I can't even drink without spilling water anywhere. So just don't tell me anything. I like you. Just, and I want you to like me. So don't tell me anything important, personal. And don't ask me anywhere. I won't be on time. I mean, be able to say, you know what? I'm late. I, don't even, I can't even read a clock. It's not because it has Roman numerals on it. It's just because I, I can't read it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Human anger does not produce the righteousness of God, that God desires, verse 21. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives. Superfluity of naughtiness is in the Greek. That's King James. It's another place where the dynamic equivalence doesn't work because superfluity of naughtiness is a reference to all the residual stuff you've not even worked on yet. So it's like we're scraping the bottom of the mayonnaise jar with that little spatula. All the extra. What's, what, he's basically saying, what have you not dealt with yet? Deal with it. All the superfluity. What's left over that you're still playing games with? Deal with that. And the New Living Translation just kind of skips over and says, get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives, which would kind of incorporate it. But the, the nuance that this is the stuff you're still not dealing with, it's more specific as if to say that, that thing, Deal with it before it costs you more. Humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. 
And that's our theme verse for our church, James 1.21. Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. It, again, the dynamic equivalence isn't quite accurate here. It's not in our heart. It's in our spirit. If you get born again tomorrow, you've been born again in your spirit. Your heart knows nothing about the Bible. You'll spend the rest of your life studying the Bible and writing the Word of God upon the table of your heart. But the inborn, the engrafted, is actually not even a good translation because that would say it's two branches grafted together, but it actually is implanted or inborn. This is a reference to being begotten again of the eternal Word of God. It's our spiritual DNA. And now James is saying, it's in you. Receive it. Because it has the power to save your soul. It doesn't say it's going to. It has the power to do that. But what if you don't receive it? If you don't receive it, it doesn't save your soul. This is where it's important to understand the threefold nature of man, born again in your spirit, but you got to be sanctified in your soul. It's possible to be born again in your spirit and never have a sanctified soul. You can be born again 60 years and go to heaven fighting with your spouse like white trash. That's not peaceful. Don't, don't let your spouse rejoice at your funeral. Don't let them say, free at last, free at last. Great God Almighty, free at last. Fix it. Fix what you've got still working in you. And let the word of God save your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. This whole chapter has been about fixing the intimate part of you because as members, if we can be strengthened individually, then the corporate body is also strengthened. It comes back to this personal responsibility to grow in Christ. Receive with meekness the engrafted word that has the ability to save your soul. But if you don't receive it, it's not going to save you. It's like having a medicine cabinet full of medicine. It's yours, but if you don't ever go and receive it, it won't fix anything. So we have to make use of what's been given to us. Keep reading. Verse 22, but don't just listen to God's word. Uh-oh. You must do what it says. I like this because it simplifies it. Don't just listen to God's word. Don't just take notes. Don't just come to Wednesday night service. Do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. What a, what a beautiful modern way of saying it. Don't just listen. Do it. And this is a reference to Matthew 7 where he says, the word of the kingdom of God is likened to a man that hears the word of God and builds his house. And does it, he builds his house upon the rock. And the rains come and the storms flood and his house stands because he was a doer of the word built upon the rock. But the kingdom is also likened to him that hears the word and doesn't do it. He buildeth his house too on the sand. And this rain comes, the storm falls, rises, and the house falls. And then Jesus says specifically, last verse is Matthew 7, and great is the fall of the house. But what is interesting is both men build and both men succeed in their building. It is possible to succeed for a season without doing the word of God. But the storms of life come inevitably. It storms upon the just and the unjust. We all have been through storms. Some of us have lost nothing. Some of us have lost a lot because we weren't doers of the word. You can keep building if you want, but you would be wise according to the teaching of our Savior to hear the word and do it so that as you build your life, it's upon the rock because the storms are promised. It will come for all of us. And what it is is always different. But I'd much rather the storm come once my house is finished, my life is finished on the rock, and not some shifting sand. 
You can march on and do what you want, but great will be the fall. The fall is always inevitable, and it will be a great failure, and it'll be embarrassing. Let's keep reading. Verse 23, for if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. Let me back up to that deceiving yourselves. That's what King James says. This is the verse of the word I mentioned earlier. It says, false reasoning, beguiling yourself, not honest with yourself. One commentary I was reading after said, these people rationalize their lack of nonconformity to the word. These people, the self-deluded, the self-deception, they rationalize why they don't have to do the word. They rationalize, well, I, that doesn't apply to me. Oh, well, the word says this, well, I'm not going to do it. Well, you violate the word. Well, I have peace about not doing the word. When I took over this church, when I moved back from Indianapolis, the church in 2004 was grossly corrupted and perverse. And I won't go into all the detail about the corruption, the perversion, but needless to say, they were regular trips by a lot of our church members to the bars in Nashville. And the college kids were going to the bars and the career kids were going to the bars and the nightclubs. I mean, I mean even the Methodist says, what? Huh. <laughs> even the Lutheran says, nah, that doesn't feel right. But not us charismatics. Folks would go to the White Horse Saloon. Folks would go to white t uh, wet t-shirt contests. And so even though all that violates Scripture, it's very evident when you have a pure heart and a clean mind and a simple reading of the Scripture. But the justification was, well, I don't have a check in my spirit about it. Well, what spirit are you listening for? I have peace about it. You know, the Lord's not stopped me. Well, he doesn't stop murderers either. That was the justification. That's what I walked into here coming out of Indianapolis in Dr. Sumrall's Bible school. And that's what I kept hearing. Well, I have peace about it. I don't have a check about it. The Lord hasn't checked me on it. So it's okay that you go to these bars, ride these motorcycles, look at, you know, women's tops with wet shirts and, you know, go out till 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning, show up for church. And you're okay because you don't have a check, because you have peace. You're violating, I don't know, 15 scriptures that the children can quote, but it's okay for you because it doesn't check you in the spirit. All right, I don't think you even know what the spirit sounds like anymore. The Bible says abstain from anything that even looks evil. That's such a high standard. It doesn't say abstain from evil. Abstain from anything that even remotely looks evil. And that changes wherever you go in culture. That means we have to live based on the conscience of those around us. And if it looks wrong, you stay away from it. It doesn't have to be wrong if it just looks that way. If it can be perceived, then you as the spiritual one have to avoid it. This is what it says. These folks, they rationalize their lack of disobe uh, their, their disobedience. They rationalize their lack of nonconformity to the word. So I ask this question. Do we rationalize our failure to obey the word? Do we rationalize our failure to live up to God's standard? Well, that's not for me. That's for pastor. Well, you know, I'm not a preacher. Well, you know, I'm just a newbie in the faith. Well, you know what? I haven't been serving God long. Well, that doesn't mean you give up. Strive. Strive. Well, you know, that just feels a little legalistic. Well, take it up with God, not me. It's not like I'm jamming new verses into this Bible. 
I'm preaching out of the same Bible I've had since college. This is my third version of the Cambridge Study Bible. This one just happens to date to the year 2002. So this one is 21 years old. It's been rebound twice. Not added anything new to it. The standard's not changed. You've just gotten lazy. You've just gotten carnal. The standard hasn't changed. What we preached today was easy 50 years ago. We were looking for something else. Let's go, let's go die on the mission field. It's getting bored around here in America. And now we're like, really? You want me to come to three services? You want me to be clean? You mean I can't go to Hooters? You mean I can't watch porn at home? You mean I can't drink a little bit? You mean I can't vape and chug like a choo-choo? You mean I can't cuss my spouse and tell them I wish they were dead? Not unless you want a demon. It's not a hard standard. You're just a soft believer. If you're born again, you're able. Just keep reading here. Amen. James is becoming my new favorite epistle. That preaches really good. <laughs> if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Well, that's kind of dumb. Mirrors help us improve our appearance. You look into a mirror to see what needs to be fixed. This beard of mine keeps getting a little bit bushier. And it seems like every day I you know, go in the mirror and all of a sudden one of these hairs is growing up towards my eyeball. And I'm like, Why did you, when did you become like an insect antenna? Like you were laying down fine yesterday. And then I had to trim one today. All of a sudden it just hung a Louie and was just sticking straight out. And it was gray. The gray doesn't bother me, but sticking out. So I wiped it a couple times. It stuck back out and wiped it. So I'm like, fine. I got the clippers and went, there, done. That's how I do sheep. Won't conform, go away. <laughs> you look into a mirror to improve how you look. So what kind of idiot looks in the mirror and says, I see that pimple. I see that nose hair. I see, I see that Wing Chun Kung Fu ear hair. And I'm going to leave it. And I see that stuff in my teeth. And I think we're just going to go with that. And you and I look into the Word, and it shows us how to improve. And we're like, no, I think I'm just going to stay the same. But we do it. We get convicted. Oh, that's good preaching. Pastor took lots of notes. And we do nothing with it at all. I want that there. I like that nose hair. <laughs> I'm not talking about the long one here. I'm talking about the tuft on the top. And I would say, ma'am, ma'am, you, you should. I don't know what they make for that, but they have to make something because you can't be the first. But whatever it is, I'll buy you three. And why didn't your husband tell you? <laughs> well, that's why he has two black eyes. <laughs> you see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Now, the Greek gives us two different uses of the word look. The first one is glance or to behold. It's a very casual. And this a casual glance into God's Word. This is how a lot of Christians today study the Bible. It's a casual. i got to get through my Bible in a year, you know. And I, if you can do it and study your Bible, great. But if I were to prescribe to you as a teaching pastor with a pretty good working knowledge of the Word, I would not prescribe reading the Bible in a year because you're not going to get much out of it because it's a glance. Yes, you glanced at it, but what would you get out of it? 
Can you even tell me what today's reading was? Well, that's Second Kings. What was it about? Uh, a king. Mm. Good for you. Go back and glance a little harder. But this says, but whosoever looketh, and this is a deep intentional inspection. It's two different types of the word uh, look, and it's purposeful that way. The glance is, oh yeah, I read that once. I've heard this before. Yeah, I did my daily devotional. Yeah, 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 I, I read three chapters this morning. The other is, he whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Because remember, we're both, both of these passages are talking about the word. The word is a mirror. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. This is the same word describing Mary and John at the tomb. They looketh because it's important to them. And they have to look hard because it's a dark mystery. When you look, think of a tomb, it's bright outside. There's no lights on the inside. So you have to go in and let your eyes adjust like we do with the word of God and let your heart adjust. And what am I even looking at? And what am I making out? That's how we're to look at the word of God. And you can't read the Bible in a year unless you're retired and do that with every scripture, all 32,000 of them. I'm not against reading the Bible in a year, but I rarely meet people that do it that have any depth about them. I appreciate the discipline. Let me qualify that. Thank God it's better than reading Facebook every day for a year. But there's a difference between glancing and forgetting and looking deep into, like same word, when Mary and John went to the tomb and they looketh in because it was important what was inside. And we have to, as the Bible says, look through a mystery, a, a, a window, a mirror darkly. We look through it, this veil darkly. We have to get close to see what the word of God says to us. And it promises that if we do it and we do what it says and don't forget what we've heard, God will bless what we do. Whatever it's telling us to do, to change, to repent, to clean up, whatever the Lord has spoken to us in that word we've deeply inspected, if we do it, we'll be blessed. One thing is for sure to hear and not do, you're not blessed. You're cursed. Verse 26, almost done for this evening. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, and the term religion there refers to the outward works. It's not a negative reference like we use around here in this part of the country. If you claim to keep the law, if you came to keep the ordinances, but you don't keep your tongue, and that's the contrast. You can keep everything else, but if you don't keep your tongue, you're a fool. You're fooling yourself. That's the second time we've talked about self-deception in this chapter. And your religion is worthless. Keep everything else, all the ordinances. This is the early church. This is the first epistle written after the resurrection. Keep everything, but if you can't keep your tongue, what's the point? We have to watch our mouth. That comes back to be slow to speak, slow to anger. Somebody said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and people think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. Let them suspect you're stupid, but don't open it and prove them right. Let them think you're full of anger, but don't open it and prove that you are. The mouth reveals the heart, and a bridled tongue requires a bridled emotion. And if you can't bridle your emotions or your mind, you can't bridle your tongue. So a loose mouth reveals a loose soul. All you have to do is just judge what's coming out of your mouth. And that's what's in your soul. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So if you can't discipline your mind, your mouth won't be disciplined, but your mouth is also revealing what's going on upstairs anyway. When you're scared, you're going to talk about it. When you're angry, you're going to talk about it. When you're excited, you're going to talk about it. If we would be smart enough to examine the fountain of our mouth, it would show us what's going on. In hydrology, they do what's called dye testing. They'll take gallons and gallons and gallons of a special chemical, and they'll just dump it into a stream upstream from where they suspect it's going into a cave. And then they'll give it a couple days, couple weeks to pass through the water table and the hydrologic cycle system. And they'll go into the cave and they'll use uh, UV lights to see if they can pick up any of the dye parts per million. They're, they're what it's called the effluent. They're inspecting the effluent or the resurgence, the water coming out. And you can typically tell what's in the cave by what's coming out of the water. I'll tell you two fun stories. Jack Daniels, I was just telling somebody this. Jack Daniels Distillery down in Lynchburg makes whiskey. I know this. I've never had Jack Daniels, but I've taken a tour of the distillery three or four times. Last time I was there, Dr. Seif was with me. Only black guy we saw for 100 miles. <laughs> I said, Dr. Seif, I'm not sure. Lynchburg, if this is a safe place for you. He was fearless. We bought a whiskey barrel down there for vacation Bible school. I thought, this is suiting. We'll take a black guy into Lynchburg, Tennessee, buy a whiskey barrel. We had fun. I learned this story in geology 25, 30 years ago. All the water, all the whiskey is made from the water that comes out of a cave on the property at Jack Daniels. I've seen the mouth of the cave a couple times, even seen a map of the cave. They were noticing, I think it was in the 80s, every time it would rain, the turbidity the quality of the water coming out of the cave would drop and they were getting more detritus in the water, which then had to go through the filtration system to be made into the whiskey. It's the water they're using to make the whiskey, corn, rye whiskey, whatever. And they were noticing water quality would sink every time because whatever's going on in the cave is coming out of its mouth. Whatever's going on in the cave is coming out of the mouth of the cave. So they're not geologists. This is Jack Daniels. It's just generational whiskey making. So they were like, well, something's not right. What should we do? They contact some geologists. They said, well, what's, what's the water, uh, the recharge? What's the watershed for the cave look like? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, what's, you have a map. We don't have that. Let's map it first. So they map the cave. So they go up there. I don't know how many, it's a mile, mile and a half a cave. It's a pretty large watershed. So they map the cave. So then what you do with the map of the cave is then you overlay it on the topography to see what the property above, see what the recharge basin is, because when it rains, the rain goes into the karst recharge area, the little swallets. It's called, um, it doesn't matter what it's called, the name escapes me, karst recharge. And what they realized was that the entire watershed was a farm covered in cows. So every time it would rain, all the manure would make its way into the cave system, into the water, and into your whiskey. Now, they had a filtration system, I'm sure, but it was probably choking the filtration, which is costing them money. So when they figured out where the property was, what the watershed was, as the story was related to me, the next week, every cow was removed because Jack Daniels bought up everything. <laughs> because they have to protect the heart to control what comes out of the mouth. Now, a bunch of whiskey makers get it, but Christians don't. So another story, hydrology, because what comes out of the mouth is revealing of what's in the heart. So one of my friends, doctor, well, professors, Dr. Helton, went to heaven a year or two ago, a great Baptist, tremendous man of God. He taught me this story. He was called out on a job as a consultant, and this was local, 
or maybe it was in Kentucky, but it was in Karst Cave area. And the farmer said, I'm having trouble with my water. He said, are you a water well? Yes, sir, I'm on a water well. He said, all right, well, what's the problem? He says, I turned the water on and it's getting nasty. What do you mean nasty? Slimy. Slime is coming out of my kitchen taps, making my kids sick. All right. Well, let me come out there and let me do some surveying and let me take a look. So sure enough, where's your water well? It's down here. All right. He walks around and uh, he said, what else? He said, it gets lumpy, clumpy. Hair, hair came out of the pump. How the pump? I don't know. It's nasty. I, I just imagine like somebody blowing their nose in the winter and that's what's coming out of the faucet, but it's making the kids sick. So he surveys the land. He says, you got any sinkholes around here? I do, right up there. And Dr. Helton said the sinkhole was right in hydrologic line with the water well. So he walks up, sure enough, big sinkhole. Everybody knows what a good upper Cumberlander does with a sinkhole on their property. It's human nature. You throw stuff into it. I once went to a guy's property looking for caves. You got any sinkholes? Yeah. Where there? Is it a good one? Oh, yeah. We threw a house in it in 65. It's all gone now. I didn't believe him, so me and a buddy in college started digging, and we found shingles. We dug, and it was just shingles and shingles. They put a whole house in a sinkhole, and the guy said, it's amazing. It just ate the whole house. This isn't the sea pit of Harkoon. This isn't Star Wars. It's in a cave system, doofus. So he said, all right, so he can see, Dr. Helton can see, here's the sinkhole, higher elevation. Property goes down. There's the water well. There's the house. He says, all right, sir. You throw anything in that sinkhole recently? Well, yeah, dead horse. So, well, I got news for you. Good news and bad news. Good news is we can fix this. Bad news is you're drinking horse. And if you can protect your heart, you can, if you can protect what goes in you, you can protect what comes out of you. Pretty simple. So what's coming out of your mouth? Because James completes it by saying this. Verse 27, last verse. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So yes, we care for widows and orphans, and that means to live with them and take them on as your own, not just give them money at Christmas time. We don't so much have widows and orphans like they did in the first century, but we look for ways to care for them. But the part I want you to see is True religion, true walks with God means you keep the world from corrupting you, which means you got like Jack Daniels could see what was corrupting their water source. This farmer wanted to know what was corrupting his water source. You and I have got to be able to recognize where's the corruption coming in that's coming out of our mouth. What's causing this? Because if you and I can't bridle our tongue, everything we do for God, according to James, is, is, is dead. It's pointless. Your religion is worthless. Your, your activities, your tithing, your service is worthless. If you can't bridle your tongue, this is a hard saying. James says everything else you do is dead. Because this isn't religiosity. It's the religious works that we have to do as Christians. You can serve and do this and that, but you can't control your mouth. This little thing right here, you can't, can't control that. James goes on to say later, we set the whole course of nature on fire with our mouths. So we have to bridle it. So let's maybe be as wise as Jack Daniels, who never thought I'd preach that. <laughs> if you can tell you got trash coming out of your mouth, where's it coming from? And be wise like Jack Daniels, asterisk, 
qualify that. Don't say, go, <laughs> Pastor preaching on the positivity, Jack Daniels. <laughs> it's a horrible analogy. Please forgive me. But it's geology and it's all I got. But it fits. Are you willing to go pay the price to get all the cattle off your life? Here's where poop fits nicely into the sermon. <laughs> Miss Susan will be so proud of me. She's in bed, babies, tending their poop. <laughs> What's mucking your soul? What's defecating into your pure water? Because James goes on to say, can bitter and sweet flow forth from the same fountain? It works, church. Bitter and sweet flowing forth from the same fountain. That's where Jack Daniels gets their water for their whiskey is from a fountain, a cave. And it can't. Bitter and sweet cannot. How is corruption coming out of our mouths? Find out what cow is defecating in your sinkhole. Find out what dead horse has been put in your sinkhole and fix it. Clean it out. Let the washing of God's word go, go to that sinkhole. Pull out the rest of that carcass. And let the washing of God's word just flush it out, flush it out, because it'll pass through. Turn your fountain off for a couple weeks, test the water, and then fire it back up and drink healthy water again. But just like that fountain, it was making everybody in the house sick, and so's your mouth. Your mouth will make your kids sick. Your mouth will make your spouse sick. Your mouth will make your mama sick. Your mouth will make your daddy sick. Your mouth is the problem because your heart is broken. James has a lot to say. How in the world you can study the scriptures and make this about your best Tuesday ever? I have no idea. How do you make this all about hope? I have no idea. Because I'm reading the same scripture they avoid. Maybe that's the issue. We're just exegeting. Is there any other way to interpret this stuff? I mean, can you spin this and make it just feel warm, fuzzy, and kumbaya? This is dealing with us. Because we're supposed to be Christ-like. Amen.